So it's challenging. I mean, I don't want to downplay that. This is a very diff- when you make these transitions, the transitions are difficult. But they could be a lot easier if we didn't have some of the regulatory framework that we have in, at, at present. And we, they would also be a lot easier if we didn't have people thinking that government can fix these problems. Welcome to Acton Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. One of America's greatest success stories is its economy. For over a century, it has been the envy of the world. The opportunity it generates has inspired millions of people to want to become American. Today, however, America's economy is at a crossroads. Many have lost confidence in the country's commitment to economic liberty. Across the political spectrum, many want the government to play an even greater role in the economy via protectionism, industrial policy, stakeholder capitalism, or even quasi-socialist policies. Numerous American political and business leaders are embracing these ideas, and traditional defenders of markets have struggled to respond to these challenges in fresh ways. Then there is a resurgent China, bent on eclipsing the United States' place in the world. At stake is not only the future of the world's biggest economy, but the economic liberty that remains central to America's identity as a nation. But managed decline and creeping statism do not have to be America's only choices, let alone its destiny. In his latest book, The Next American Economy, Nation, State, and Markets in an Uncertain World, Dr. Samuel Gregg insists that there is an alternative. And that is a vibrant market economy grounded on entrepreneurship, competition, and trade openness, but embedded in what America's founding generation envisaged as the United States' future, a dynamic commercial republic that takes freedom, commerce, and the common good of all Americans seriously, and allows America as a sovereign nation to pursue and defend its interests in a dangerous world without compromising its beliefs in the power of economic freedom. In this episode, Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow at the Acton Institute, sits down with Sam Gregg, distinguished fellow in political economy and senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and an affiliate scholar here at the Acton Institute, to discuss the book and the economic, political, and moral complications of our increasingly globalized world. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello and welcome to Acton Line. My name is Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the journal Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. I'm joined today by Dr. Samuel Gregg, distinguished fellow in political economy and senior research faculty member at the American Institute for Economic Research and an affiliate scholar and former director of research here at the Acton Institute. Sam, thank you for joining us today. Dylan, it's great to be with you. So you're here to talk about economic globalization. Uh, Let's just begin by defining some terms. What is globalization? Well, globalization has been used to describe anything from the uh, integration of the world's financial markets to the 
the basically the decline of the types of barriers that are associated with protectionism. But I think a, a, a broader and I think in some respects more accurate definition of globalization is the growth and spread of interrelationships between people and peoples and organizations across national boundaries so that national boundaries start to become more porous and the world, whether it's politically or economically or even socially, starts to become more integrated. And this assumes different forms at different points of history. Uh, sometimes the, the interaction and the interrelationships can be based on things like ideas. Uh, one of the most potent ideas of the 20th century, of course, was Marxism. If you have a look at a map of the world and see how much of the world was Marxist or subject to Marxist regimes, you think, wow, that's sort of a form of ideological globalization. Uh, if you go back to the, uh, the 17th century, the 18th century, 19th century, we see the emergence of another type of globalization, which was a globalization of war. So we saw in the Seven Years' War in the middle of the 18th century, that's really the first global war where you see uh, a war being carried out across the globe in literally every continent. Uh, or if you go to the 19th century and you see a fair amount of economic globalization as protectionism is pushed to the margins and free trade becomes much more of a norm that is embraced by many, if not most, of the world's nations. In fact, I would argue that the, the, the global economy of the 19th century was in some respects more integrated than the type of global economy that we, hear, we have now. So that interaction and that interrelationship and integration of individuals, groups, nations, trading partners, military alliances, uh, even things like religion, right? So one of the things about that's distinctive about Christianity is that it is truly a globalizing force. Its very, its very nature leads it to want to spread a particular message to literally all the nations. And this is very different from some other forms of religion which are more narrowly focused and don't have that type of universalistic dimension to them. So one standard understanding, which I I think you covered all these elements uh, of globalization, has uh, highlights these three characteristics. Uh, Deterritorialization, the growth of interconnectedness, and the increased velocity of social activity. Um, now, I tend to think all of those things are on the whole positive, but you know, as you pointed out, war, communism, there's, there's definitely negative examples of this. Um, and there's, there's many today who worry over globalization, particularly economic globalization, um, and I think they have some serious concerns to the extent that they simply value national sovereignty or privacy, or they rightly point out that the internet isn't always the nicest place. Um, none of these things are incapable of being used for harm and even great harm. So how, how would you address these kinds of concerns? Well, I think the first thing to do is acknowledge that they are legitimate concerns. Uh, so, for example, you mentioned the Internet. The Internet is, a, by definition, a type of universal communications mechanism that anyone with a cell phone uh, or anyone with a computer can access pretty easily and be instantly immersed into something that, by nature, spreads itself across national boundaries and between national boundaries and people from different countries instantaneously. 
and the internet has many good things on it. It also has a lot of bad things on it as well. So that's, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are legitimate concerns or even things like national sovereignty. I mean, if you think about uh, economic globalization, when you have people trading between countries, that that tends to mean that countries are willing to sort of um, not give up sovereignty, but they're willing to let people in. They make decisions to let people into their country. And uh, I th- generally think that, especially when it comes to the economy, that's generally a very positive force. Free trade, for example, tends to increase wealth for everyone who's involved in the trade over periods of time. Uh, but there are tensions that go along with this. We see this for immigration, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, if globalization Im- involves the free movement of goods and services and money across borders, uh, it's hard to, and to not extend that to people crossing borders relatively easily. And that often gives rise to, for example, genuine national security concerns, that if you you don't want people coming into a country, if their objective in coming into the country is to destroy that country or to engage in terroristic action or things like that. Uh, So I think it's really a question of acknowledging that there are negative aspects to this integration of the world, but also to remind people of the positive positive side of it and not let... uh, a desire to manage and mitigate some of those negativities become an excuse or an agenda for basically uh, taking down, if you like, the most positive dimension of globalization. So you, you see this, for example, a little bit with some of the debates about immigration. You see this with some of the debates about trade. Uh, and I think there's a tendency for people who are very suspicious of economic global, globalization to look at this and say, well, uh, we have these risks that are associated with it, so therefore we need to move back in a more protectionist direction. You see that type of logic working itself out now. So I'm kind of curious. Uh, do you think that there's a need for uh, a global currency or currency standard, right? If we have this world which is just constantly growing smaller through globalization, uh, the answer to the to the question "Who is my neighbor?" Uh, becomes harder and harder to just pin down. Although I want to return to that in a minute, um, but all these transactions, all this trade, um, you know, even things like immigration, um, they all involve money. Um, and right now, we got you know a hundred different currencies, many of them managed very poorly by their governments. Even the United States dollar, which uh, has a decent track record. Uh, we're looking at 8% inflation. Uh, it's something that we're really struggling to kind of get under control. Um, is there a need for, you know, return to something like gold or maybe uh, more innovative solutions like uh, cryptocurrency or something along those lines? Well, in the one of the characteristics of <clears throat> globalization, economic globalization in the late 19th century was uh, this this voluntary adherence by pretty much all the world's nations and governments and what we would call central banks to the gold standard. The gold standard was uh, a a monetary system that integrated the currencies of all countries across borders. It was not controlled from the top down by anyone. It was basically uh, based upon uh, a willingness on the part of governments to embrace the types of disciplines associated with the gold standard. 
Uh, and in the case of the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, up until really 1914, which is when the gold standard came to an end as a consequence of World War Two and go- uh, World War One, and when go- governments yeah. took themselves off the gold standard so they could print money mm-hmm. to fund war. I mean, they were very open about this. They didn't try and hide it. Right. Um, what was interesting about that period was that you had steady economic growth and very little, if any, inflation because governments voluntarily adhered to this. Uh, and they were prepared to recognize that in doing so, that might mean some domestic disruption uh, to economic life. But what it meant, of course, they were taking the long-term view. The gold standard and other such, uh, let's call them universalistic monetary systems, actively encouraged governments and central banks to take the long-term rather than the immediate short-term or even the uh, medium-term. Uh, And that involves a fair amount of discipline on the part of governments because it's very easy to say, well, we could solve some of our problems if only we could get off the gold standard and print some more money. That would be be one way of getting around that. Now, do I think there's a possibility of going back to something like the gold standard? Not in the present climate. I don't think there is. Uh, But I do think that we should be willing to explore alternatives to some of the current status quo, which is basically the US dollar functioning as the world's reserve currency, which in turn is backed up by the, it's based on the the general health and prospects of the United States economy. That worked relatively well from uh, the 1970s up until the present. Uh, But the downside, of course, is that when uh, the Federal Reserve or the United States government, uh, in the case of the central bank, prints money, or in the case of the federal government, spends lots of money and doesn't have anything to uh, pay for it with. Um, the effects of inflation are transmitted through that through that mechanism to the rest of the world's economies. So I do think that uh, uh, I'm not sure whether going back to the gold standard per se is necessarily the answer. Uh, I do think, though, that we need to be rethinking the way we manage some of these things because the advantage of something like the gold standard was that it was truly universal, right? So it added a type of monetary discipline to all the world's central banks. And we really don't have that now. What we have is a reserve currency, the US dollar, and central bankers basically agreeing among themselves to do certain things or not, depending on the circumstances that they're confronting in their particular countries. So I think the status quo as it stands is not a particularly healthy one and uh, maybe crypto is an answer. I don't, I don't really know. But I do know that the current status quo is probably unsatisfactory. So uh, I mentioned the question, who is my neighbor? That, of course, uh, is a question that, that Jesus was famously asked um, to which he answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, who is a foreigner, a heretic uh, by Jewish sam- standards, um, ethnically – uh, considered, you know, second class. Uh, so in many ways, very much uh, uh, the consummate outsider. Um, so perhaps there's something there. On the other hand, um, there are certainly people, and I think uh, very prudently so, like St. Augustine, who talks about uh, a certain um, priority of proximity, right? So I need to love my neighbor, but it's impossible to love all of humanity all at once, um, at least in, in terms of with all of my resources. This is just a classic problem of economics, right? We have scarce resources, and so we have to use them for limited ends. Um, but how does this globalized context in which we live, certainly starting um, at least in the 19th century um, with you know things like the telegraph, um, the railroad, you know all these increased communication, travel, 
um, trade. Um, but today, you know, light speed faster in some cases, right? You know, the internet, I can talk with someone in South Korea in real time if I want, right? How does this affect our, our moral responsibility um, to people, to uh, the cities, the nations, the economies in which they live? Um, how does someone who really wants to live out Christ's answer to that question, uh, who is my neighbor, um, how do we do that today in, in such a different context? Well, I think, well, you mentioned St. Augustine and his, his, issue, his question about proximity. And I think that still holds true because, uh, yes, we have a, a type of universal obligation to love our neighbor, especially those who are in need, the poor defined broadly, not just materially poor, but spiritually poor, etc. So that's definitely there. At the same time, the proximity issue reminds us that um, you and I have responsibilities to our children that other people don't because we are their parents and other people are not their parents. So that issue of proximity starts to bring definition to the priority by which we live out this commandment to love our neighbors. So it is entirely reasonable for us to... um, exert more energy and more focus on our children, our parents, those to whom, and also those who we have freely undertaken obligations to, and, and to uh, prioritize those over the situation of a family in, in Latin America, for example. It's entirely reasonable. That's not, that's not an anti-Christian mindset. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that I think it was Adam Smith who said that uh, once you move, he said, once you move beyond the level of uh, the nation, the capacity for us to imagine our responsibilities and sympathy, as he would call it, for people who are not part of our nation becomes more limited. He's pointing to something you referred to, which is this, this, um, this proximity issue, but also the fact that we have certain sympathies that are part of who we are because of who we are and where we're living and what nation we belong to, what territory we're, we're living in, etc. And I think that's right because I think he's pointing out it's just much harder for us to imagine concrete responsibilities to people living in another country compared to those to whom we are living in uh, literally down the road from us or in our, our city, our state, our country, etc. Now, that all said, another way to think about this is that um, – If you believe, and this is an economic dimension, if you believe that markets and trade are the best ways to get people out of poverty and to integrate them into global markets that gradually lift people out of poverty, then maybe one of the most concrete things you can do for people, groups, even nations that are not part of your group, your family, your nation, is to try and work to provide as much space and opportunity for them to participate in global markets. So it's a more indirect thing. So it's when we, we take down a trade barrier, it's not like we're saying, I'm in doing this intentionally in order that that particular family in that country is going to benefit from this. It's not typically how we think about it. But the effect is to achieve that type of end. So this is another thing. We need to think about the um, intended choices that we make and also the unintended consequences of our actions and to think very seriously about that because um, if you play the protectionist game, uh, you end up, you're basically taking an antagonistic approach to people who are outside your country. But I'd add, you are also 
damaging your own country mm. as well, right? Because when you engage in the protectionist game, the people who pay the price are not just the people you're putting tariffs on. It's also your own fellow citizens who end up paying more for goods and services than they otherwise would. So these are the sorts of nuances I think we need to think through. The proximity issue, the question of where, our, where how far our natural sympathy can extend, what are our personal and concrete responsibilities to particular groups and individuals by virtue of who we are and the function we have in society, and also the indirect ways in which we can aid our neighbor without even necessarily directly intending it. So, yeah, you mentioned unintended consequences. Um, and in particular, when you were talking about inflation, it strikes me that, uh, you know, even, you know, I certainly also think this way, but I think it's really easy to think of, well, you know, the United States has the dollar, um, Canada has their, you know, their cute little pretend dollar they have too. And, uh, you know, but and then, you, you know, Europe has the euro and Great Britain has the pound and so on. Um, Actually, I think Canadian dollar is usually ahead of us. But uh, um, but not to think in terms of, you know, monetary policy, I think there's enough issues where, you know, 8% inflation is something we're all feeling today. Um, and and the, the more you're struggling economically, the more you're going to feel that because um, that's, that's your, you know, your grocery price going up. That's your, you know, your wage being eaten away. Devalued. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there are global consequences to this. As you as you said, you know, the United States dollar is the world's reserve currency, or at least it's been used that way. And some of these other major currencies um, sometimes are, are used in that capacity. Um, so, to what extent do we need to to think globally about loving our neighbor with monetary policy? Uh, well, that that's a good point because central bankers generally tend to focus upon uh, their charge, which is invariably to their nation. Now, in the case of the euro, it's a little different, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a transnational currency, a supranational currency. So they need to think about all members of the European Union when they're making decisions about monetary policy. Um, and that's, that's actually quite hard because the economy, for example, Portugal is very different from the economy of Germany. And this leads to all sorts of problems as a consequence because one set of um, one inflation one, one interest rate um, rise or, or fall will affect some of these co- economies extremely differently and not always for the better um, so in their case they actively have to try and think about how does this affect people from a variety of different countries and in ver- quite different economies in the case of the United States though I think part of the challenge is that because it's a world currency, it's very hard for them not to have to think at some level about what are the global implications of, of letting inflation get out of control in the United States, which is what we're seeing now. So we're seeing countries in Europe, countries in Latin America, countries in Asia being affected by this because the inflationary consequences we're living through now get transmitted through the dollar to the rest of the world's economies. And there's not much they can do about it. There's not a lot they can do about it beyond raise interest rates in their own countries and hope that somehow balances off what's coming out of the the inflationary spread from the United States. So um, at least I certainly think in the case of the United States, uh, if you're a central banker, if you're head of the Federal Reserve, of course you're going to be thinking about the well-being of the United States. But because you are the world's reserve currency, at some level you do need to think about how this is going to affect people around the world. 
for whom the Federal Reserve was never designed in the first place to, to serve and to promote the common good of. So there are some very real dilemmas, I think, that emerge as a consequence of the current monetary system that we have now. But I do think one thing that would be a helpful step forward is to to basically bind central banks more or less to one particular objective, uh, that being uh, monetary stability. That's essentially what they're supposed to be doing. But of course, if you look at a lot of central banks, including the United States, they usually have something like a dual mandate. So the other part of the mandate for the Federal Reserve in the United States is what's called maximum employment. Okay, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And what this means, of course, is that the dual mandate allows the Fed to pretty much just to do what it wants and appeal to one part of the mandate to justify what it is that they're doing. Uh, and I think that that, <clears throat> that means that they can behave often, a rel often in a relatively arbitrary way. And I think that the discipline of being told, no, your mandate is monetary stability, would enable central banks to focus upon what their central task is, and that's how they promote the wider common good of society. Like any other institution, Acton always talks about the common good and how this works, and I think one of the ways in which institutions and groups contribute to the common good is by fulfilling their particular job and their particular responsibilities, rather than trying to take on the responsibilities of other groups. It should not be, the, I think, the responsibility of the Federal Reserve to have to think about employment things. That's, that's for the private sector and to a certain extent uh, federal and state governments. So narrowing the focus of different mandates or at least putting in rules, rules-based monetary systems whereby central banks can't just go and print money. They can't go and engage in quantitative easing no matter how much pressure is put on them. I think that's actually a way in which we could restore more sanity to the functioning of monetary systems. And I think that would actually promote the common good, not just of the United States, but other countries around the world as well. So sticking with uh, the theme of globalization here, you mentioned the EU and how it has a you know, transnational or supranational um, structure. Um, do you think that has, uh, you know, I mean, you know, for context, of course, the, the British were so unsatisfied with it that they left. Uh, it took a long time and it was very difficult, um, but they, I think they have officially Brexited. Yes. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, do you think that that combination of economies um, has a way of enforcing some monetary discipline um, because you have different people with different stakes uh, in the results? Or is it something that there really hasn't been a big difference? So right. one example I think of, it was one of the first uh, blog posts I wrote here where I actually felt like I said something kind of smart. Um, <laughs> but it was about Greece. And uh, Greece previously had uh, the drachma, uh, their own currency, but they were part of the EU. They joined with some uh, kind of dubious uh, extremely <laughs> dubious. Uh, data. You mean lying. Um, they yes. lied, basically. Yes. And they freely um, admitted this a few years later. Right. And then and then it caused, it. it in addition to the U.S. housing crisis, it right. threw uh, the EU into their own um, financial crisis. And uh, and one of the interesting things that I, I was able to pick up on through reading some of the articles we published uh, in the journal um, 
uh, about uh, debt and default uh, is that a lot of nations will debase their currency when they are nearing the point of defaulting on their debt. Um, and so one example would be uh, Argentina has debased their currency. But another one is the United States. James Buchanan, a Nobel Prize winner in economics some years ago, um, called he called this a concealed default, if I remember right, that he, he basically had calculated seven or eight times in the 1980s. Uh, the U.S. had more or less done this, that um, – I believe it was the 80s, maybe 70s too, but um, that since going off the gold standard, and he wrote this in the 90s, or he died in the 90s. But um, uh, so this this idea that there was a flexibility, um, perhaps uh, again of dubious moral value, but a flexibility to just having your own currency um, that now was taken away from Greece. So Greece. One of the reasons why they couldn't get out of their debt problem is they couldn't debase their currency. Correct, um, and that that created a, a whole continental crisis <laughs> economically, uh, and it was very hard uh, on normal people in Greece uh, who really had no say in this, um, and it was hard for people all over Europe. Um, so that's the sort of thing that. It's hard to say that recommends it, but I do wonder to what extent does that transnational, uh, you know nature of the EU and the euro actually perhaps promote some of the discipline uh, that you see lacking um, in other contexts well that's that's a good question because if you look at the if you look at the origins of the European Central Bank which is the central bank that basically is responsible for monet- it's it and it has a very clear charge of monetary stability if you read um, if you read its charter that is the major charge and everything else is very, very secondary. And that's because this was insisted upon by the Germans in the lead up to um, monetary unification. Uh, and the Bundesbank was dominated by people who were, uh, let's call them inflationary hawks. So they okay. did not like inflation. Mm-hmm. And that's not surprising, right? If you think about the history of Germany in the 20th century and what happened in the 1920s with inflation. Yeah. Yeah, you and, mentioned uh, World War One and uh, yes. nations going off the gold standard in right. order to print money. Germany is case in point. That's uh, exactly yes. right. And, of course, this was the way that the German government, Weimar governments in the early 1920s tried to deal with issues like reparations. And so they basically engaged in printing a lot of money, and it was a disaster for the the German economy. So there's a long history of uh, uh, monetary uh, hawkishness on the part of um, German central bankers. And this is also a legacy of a a group of people that the Acton Institute, I know, talks a lot about a lot, which is the the Mm auto-liberals. So people like Wilhelm Robke, Wojta Eucken, devout Christians, I might add, who said that this has to be the number one responsibility of the central bank because they saw it not just as a question of avoiding some of the problems in the past, but they also thought that monetary stability um, was essentially a foundation if you wanted everything else to occur in a relatively uh, stable way. Because if you don't have stable money, if you don't prioritize monetary stability, then you have instability at some level. And when you have monetary instability, that's never good for economic life. It just makes it harder for us to make choices. We just there's, there's much more information that we have to try and get our minds around. We end up making bad choices because we're reacting to um, uh, the growth of inflation rather than thinking about, no, that's a good investment. Instead, we end up playing this game of trying to beat the inflation rate, which uh, I think certainly today, I don't think there's anywhere left to go. I don't think there's any assets that are safe right now uh, from inflation. So, um, so, but to get back to your point, I think that uh, if 
with the European Central Bank, if they had maintained the position, as I said, inherited from the German Bundesbank, that our job is monetary stability, our job is to stop inflation, uh, then I think um, you may not have had – well, first of all, you um, – you would not the, would not been the case that the central bank would have been able to intervene as it has intervened in much of Europe for quite a lot of time over the past really twelve years. Um, when I think it was Mario Draghi, now Prime Minister of Italy, said something like, um, "We'll do whatever it takes to save the euro and to prevent countries from leaving." But well, that's not your job. Your job is to maintain monetary stability. So, because precisely because the European Central Bank has well and truly departed from its mandate of monetary stability, uh, its ability to maintain a monetary stability across the European Union has been severely, uh, severely compromised. And what I find fascinating is that there are German economic professors who have, who have basically taken the ECB to court through the German court system um, basically arguing that the ECB is in violation of its own charter. And the German constitutional court said, yep, that's pretty much right. They are violating. We can't stop them, but we're just putting this marker down to say they're not doing what they should be doing. So the, the European Central Bank, I think, has departed a long way from its original foundations. And if you look at the situation right now, I would say that um, the Federal Reserve is actually being much more proactive about things like inflation than the, the European Central Bank, which is now pretty much uh, largely dominated by monetary doves. So people who will prioritize things like uh, trying to stimulate the economy by pumping money into the economy over things like inflation. All right. So we mentioned uh, the EU here. Let's take a turn a little bit away from economics and talk more about politics, although relatedly so. Um, so there are many who are concerned with potential abuses of globalization, some of which we've already talked about, um, who see, see a real need for transnational political bodies. The EU is an example of that, the UN. Um, and in their defense, uh, to some degree, both exist to stop France and Germany from going to war with each other. <laughs> it's, you know, it's been a long si time since they've done that, so we, we should at least give them marks where due. Um, nevertheless, uh, some people have a different idea in mind. So Pope John the 23rd and most recently Pope Benedict the 16th have reasoned that because the common good has come to embrace the whole of humanity, some general form of public authority with an equivalent all embracing scope is now necessary as well. Do you agree with them? And if not, why not? <laughs> well, what's interesting about that is that, um, when John the Twenty Third talked about that in, I think it was in Parchment Terrace. I think yes. is where he he talks about this. Um, he's invoking a type of natural law argument that, as the scope of the common good expands beyond the nation state, that you need equivalent authorities that can act in a way that promotes that universal uh, common good. So that's the basic argument. Now, what's what is. Um, often left out when that point is made, and Benedict XVI did not leave this point out, is that that all needs to be mediated by the principle of subsidiarity. And Benedict XVI is very clear about this. And the reason he says that is because um, it's really not the province or within the capacity of, say, uh, a supranational organization to make decisions about 
what's going on in a particular city or town in, say, Portugal or Greece. They're just not going to. They're just not going to know enough about the situation. Uh, they'll come up with a situation, a solution that's probably uh, quite detached from the realities of what's going on in that particular community. So while theoretically, I think the case can certainly be made um, about this, about what you, as you've just described. I think the same tradition indicates there are very strong limits uh, to how that actually gets realized. And when you get to the level of international authorities and an international common good, well, it's really – you're really getting to the level of very broad generalities, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The second thing I say, which is uh, also part of the same tradition about thinking about these things, is that national sovereignty plays in a way a role equivalent – to private property uh, when, you when it comes to thinking about the international order. Um, and people like uh, as, as different in their thinking as Rocco Bottiglione, John Rawls and, and John Finnis have all made this point that just as um, the universal what, – what Christians call the universal destination of material goods is best realized in most circumstances at most points in time through private property arrangements. The equivalent argument these scholars make is that the international common good is best realized through the type of decentralization that you associate with national sovereignty. And we also know that there's a long tradition of international law that exists before uh, organizations like the League of Nations or the United Nations were even created in the first place. It was called the law of nations. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about that, it comes out of the natural law tradition, very much developed by uh, Protestant and Catholic scholars, uh, really from Augustine onwards up until the 18th century. I'm drawing from the Justinian. That's right. Well. Exactly. And yeah. Roman law mm -hmm. and Roman law as well. Uh, and it posits an international order of laws and norms that countries freely adhere to uh, without being um, pushed to adhere to these things from the top down. Things like the Geneva Convention, uh, that's a very good example of such a thing, or even the sorts of laws that govern international conflicts. These all existed before things like the UN and the League of Nations, which governed the way that countries typically behave towards each other, uh, both in terms of times of peace, but also in times of war. So there's a way of approaching this question of international order and invoking a type of international law, a law of nations, which in turn goes back, I think, to a relatively robust natural law framework for thinking about these things. There's a way of doing that without saying, and that's why we need to give all power to the United Nations. There's a whole tradition there, which I think many, many scholars of international law, but also many uh, Christian social ethicists have basically forgotten about when it comes to thinking about this question of international order. All right, so is that an agree or disagree? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it just it, the the position that you just outlined, as articulated by John the Twenty Third and a yeah. succession of um, Roman pontiffs. Uh, in theory, uh, uh, yes, but there is considerable um, uh, nuance and qualification that the tradition has always acknowledged about these things, which is not as strongly acknowledged in these particular documents. So. Um, uh, I may be mistaken, but I believe one of the founding principles of the EU is, in fact, subsidiarity. Right. 
Um, is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Well, is the EU what we should look to? No, because the <laughs> EU uh, interprets subsidiarity in a very different way. It tends to be about um, – I mean subsidiarity has uh, two principles. One is the autonomy or freedom principle. You need to give people space, even nations space to make free choices and to fulfill their particular responsibilities. But the other side of subsidiarity is assistance. So you help people to fulfill their responsibilities without – infantilizing them without taking over their responsibilities for them. And I think it's fair to say that in the European Union, the second part of that gets emphasized a lot more than the first part. And in the case of the European Union, uh, if you read things like the, um, the Treaty of Lisbon, subsidiarity comes across as a sort of functional way of dividing up particular powers between regions, nations, and European Union organizations. And that's not quite what it's really about. It's really about uh, the creation of freedom and the space to make good choices on the part of individuals, families, civil society, nations, uh, with higher organizations, you might call them, uh, providing assistance when they need to and not more than what they need to do. And that is not how subsidiarity, I think, functions in the European Union today. There's a lot of lip service given to it. Uh, but when it's cashed out in terms of active policy in the way that EU politicians and officials talk about it, you realize, so they basically mean the assistance principle with some lip service paid to the freedom principle. What do you say to, you know, the, the blue collar worker? Um, and and I, just for some context, uh, there's, you know, a narrative that I do think is largely wrong uh, that the decline of manufacturing jobs in the United States in particular, but probably also across the world and in some developed nations, is due to globalization. It's due to offshoring um, or sending jobs you know, overseas or to other countries. Um, a lot of the data shows that's, that's actually generally technology-driven. Dri Productivity um, in these industries is doing great. Um, in fact, uh, I myself uh, more or less saw... My job being replaced by a robot uh, years ago, I worked at UPS. I was a revenue auditor, so wow. I, would, I would weigh and measure boxes as they went down the belt and make sure that they were complying, the labels matched the actual um, dimensions and weight of the box. Um, but they, they brought in scanners that could read, you know, measure the box as it was just going down the belt. Um, that almost made my job obsolete. Um, and... Uh, similarly, I've worked at uh, plastic injection, medical manufacturing, and there's a lot of robots there. So they're good people. They're going to be running our transnational government someday, um, <laughs> I'm sure. But in the meantime, Skynet. <laughs> right. In the meantime, um, I do remember an example, another local example of Greenville. There was uh, the Electrolux Lux company um, decided in the early 2000s uh, to move to Mexico. Um, and that was the entire economy of Greenville, um, and, it, and it completely devastated that community. Um, what do you say to someone from Greenville who says, you know, yes, there's all these, you know, big ideas about globalization and all this potential good, but what about me? What about my family? What are we supposed to do? Well, that, of course, is the hard one, because while it's true that something like anywhere between 80 and 90 percent of um, – uh, the disappearance of jobs in the manufacturing sector is primarily due to technology. It's also true that um, at between 20 and 10 percent of those, those jobs disappearing um, have been because of companies moving offshore, etc. 
Um, so what does this mean? It means a couple of things for the type of people that you're referring to. One is um, I think one has to say that that one must recognize that there are some people who are going to find adjustment extremely difficult. Let's say you're a 55-year-old um, coal miner or whatever it happens to be. You just can't get up and start a business, you know, dot-com business in Silicon Valley. It's just a very, very different world. So I think we need to be cognizant that at least in the short term into medium term, not everyone is a winner from globalization. So the question then becomes, what do one does one do about it? Because the, the benefits, the overall benefits to the American economy and American consumers is very clear. It's also very clear that using things like protectionism and industrial policy doesn't fix these problems. And, and it actually creates a lot of other problems like the cronyism that tends to go along with these things because there's a tendency to think, well, the way that you deal with this is to, um, you know, you have a government program or you have governments providing short-term assistance or whatever it happens to be. And there are all sorts of negative things that happen as a consequence of that. You encourage dependency. You encourage people to think that, well, I just have to just accept my pay package and I'll just – live in this existence and hope that somehow things will turn around. So I think, um, I mean, it's very. Th this is all in some sense very abstract and it's very difficult when one is talking to a, a real-life person about these sorts of things. Uh, but I think the, the, the most important thing you can say is, well, first of all, um, many of the things that you're buying will be cheaper as a consequence of this. So that's a good thing for you and for everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, I think another thing to say is that we should be in the pitch situation where we try to avoid having these situations begin in the first place. And that's important because I think that uh, many of these situations are, um, are caused when an economy, be it a local economy, a town economy or a, globe, or a national economy, starts to become uncompetitive. And that's that's really what drives people offshore because they think I can get a better deal. I can get cheaper labor or things are just less costly because the environment in that country is just much better for my type of work. So that puts an obligation on regulators and politicians to work very hard to make sure that the American economy remains uh, competitive. But here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing which I've discovered is that most towns of the type that you're describing manage the transition manage the transition. There's been some very interesting research that's been done uh, by Scott Linsicomi of the Cato Institute, as well as um, some scholars working at Brookings that have shown that most, most manufacturing towns of the type you've described have actually recovered. Now, it took a while and it was a little painful at first, but most of them have recovered. And the ones that haven't recovered are the ones that have gone to the government and asked for bailout after bailout, after bailout. So I think the it's very important to point to what is actually happening and remind people that, that yes, the transition is going to be difficult, um, but in the long term, it's going to be for the better, betterment of you, but also of your families and your children. So, this is, so there's long-term benefits to this which will uh, affect you. Um, but we also have to ask ourselves, how do we get into the situation where, where parts, economies have become uncompetitive that result in them deciding to get up and leave? So I think a lot of the work we can do is to try and engage in lots of preemptive deregulation and trying to increase competitiveness so we don't have these types of situations emerging in the first place. Yeah, and perhaps not also whole towns dependent on a single company 
for their economy. Right. right? And, you know, what's diversity. It, well, that's right. And what's yeah. interesting about that is that the lack of diversity in a given town or a div- even a given state when it comes to the economy, that usually has a lot to do with the regulatory environment. It's got a lot to do with where the incentives lie. Uh, and so if you, if you don't have a relatively open economy where – and you don't have a situation where people are – or if you have a situation where um, people are looking to regulation to save them or if they're looking for handouts from the government, um, all those things add up to a very lo- negative long-term picture. So I think if you want to increase um, – let's call it the diversity, the pluralism of an economy, then you need to make sure that entrepreneurs can come in and flourish and create new businesses, new, even new entire new industries. Um, and you have to make sure that the regulatory environment is not such that it actively discourages people from thinking, well, maybe we don't all have to work in the local factory. Maybe I can start my own business. Maybe there's something around us that we can do. So it's challenging. I mean, I don't want to downplay that. This is a very... When you make these transitions, the transitions are difficult, but they could be a lot easier if we didn't have some of the regulatory framework that we have at at present, and they would also be a lot easier if we didn't have people thinking that government can fix these problems. Our guest today has been Dr. Samuel Gregg. Uh, Keep an eye out for his work at the American Institute for Economic Research. I think he's got a bright future ahead of him, maybe even a book or two in him. Uh, We'll be on the lookout for that, I'm sure. Sam, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dylan. It's great to be back at Acton. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.